last episode of this podcast was about one simile. Wow, talking about a slow walk. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante. And I don't promise anything faster, but I promise a little more plot in this episode of the podcast. We've come over a tumbling bit of clauses and verbals down a <laughs> down a grammatical waterfall that is in some way representative of the very real waterfall we're heading for. But first, we got to get down this waterfall or figure out a way down. And that's how we're going to begin. Uh, we are at lines 106 through 123 of Canto 16 of Inferno. We are still in the circle of the violent, the seventh circle of hell. We have had those violent against God and against the blasphemous and the homosexuals against nature, which is the child of God. And now we're nearing the edge of the cliff. Let's take the passage 106 through 123 of Canto 16 of Inferno. I had a cord around my waist. With it, I thought I'd be able to catch the leopard with the painted coat. After I'd taken this thing off myself, just as my master had requested, I handed it to him, all wound up and nodded. He stepped back, twisted to his right, and flung it far from the edge of the precipice and down into the deep well of that pit. I said to myself, for sure something new will respond to this weird signal that my master traces with his eyes. Wow, we should be really careful with those who not only see everything we do, but also make sense out of our thoughts. Because he said to me, it will soon come into view, this thing I anticipate, and that you try so hard to imagine. Soon it will be right in front of your face. Okay, let's stop there. Add a little bit of suspense, this cord, the cliff, Virgil throwing it. Let's stop there because there's so much to say about this crazy passage that rewrites comedy itself. It starts out, I had a cord around my waist. Did you know that? No, you didn't. You didn't know that Dante was wearing a belt, a cord, a corda. Now, let me say that for a long time in the 20th century, this was changed. And it wasn't just a cord, but it was supposedly part of a lay Franciscan outfit. And the idea was that somehow Dante himself had become a Franciscan, a lay friar, not actually taking the vows of chastity, but a lay friar. It's not true. The word for that kind of cord that a lay Franciscan friar would use is capestro. And this is just Corda. Unfortunately, this uh, notion that there's a Franciscan cord, you know, those ropes that Franciscans can wear around themselves. Th this idea came from John Chardy and his translation of comedy. And I have to say, Chardy is a great poet. And I have to also say that I love, still to this day, Chardy's translation of of comedy because Chardy is a poet and Chardy had a poet's ear for the poetry of comedy. But Chardy was not a scholar. And so <laughs> Chardy's translation has all kinds of problems in it. I still use Chardy when I teach Dante's comedy in person. Unfortunately, with every single class, I pass out pages of <laughs> 
<laughs> of corrections to Charlie's translation along with his translation. But I just love the sound of it because he has such a beautiful notion of the English language and how to translate the Florentine into it. But he was a great popularizer. He thought that this was a friar's cord around the waist. He turned Dante into this wandering mendicant, this lay version of a Franciscan friar. No, don't do that. It's already weird enough. It's a corda. I had a cord around my waist, a belt, a rope. I've got something around my waist. It's holding my tunic together at my waist. With it, I thought I'd be able to, and this is what's really wild, catch the leopard with the painted coat. Okay, let's talk about that. What's happening here? Dante is writing backwards. Remember the leopard? That's back in Canto 1. There's that leopard on the slope, and then there's the lion, and then there's the she-wolf, and that leopard with the gaudy pelt is the first thing that tries to stop him. And remember, we came up with all of these explanations for who these creatures were and all of these allegorical interpretations. Well, I want to tell you that all that allegorical open-endedness is still intact back there. It may not be intact here. How do I say this? Medieval writers don't write the way you and I would write. We write by revising. I wrote my memoir, bookmarked, over four years. And you can imagine the amount of versions that still sit on my computer, the amount of rewriting that happened. I worked with an editor, with an editor for four years on my memoir, bookmarked. So you can imagine what I did to that thing and how the first chapter was written and rewritten and rewritten. In fact, the original first chapter is now the third chapter, right? It's just a constant process of putting a giant jigsaw puzzle together. That's not a medieval writer. Pens are expensive. Ink is expensive. Parchment's expensive. Paper's expensive. You can't just, well, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite to your heart's content. If Dante were a modern writer and he wanted to have a cord around his waist back then, and he, you know, by the time you get up here, you're starting to develop this idea of how, what was it really that I was writing? And if you write a novel, you'll notice this. You'll get several chapters into it. And you'll think, oh, wait, I want my main character to, to be X. And then you'll go back to the first chapter and you'll kind of start to insert that through as you rewrite it. Dante can't really do that. If a modern writer, he'd go back and he'd be back there on the slope in Canada 1 and he'd have a cord around his waist. And he'd be like, oh, I got this cord around my waist. Maybe I can catch the leopard with it. But he's rewriting backwards. In fact, we've already seen this. Remember when he encountered Brunetto Latini and I made a big deal about how he says to Brunetto, I lost myself in a valley before my years on earth had reached their fullness. And I made this big deal that he has changed the opening lines from I found myself or I came to myself in a valley to I lost myself. And it's more actionable. It's more active. It has um, more culpability to it. I lost myself. We've already seen this rewriting happen at the front of 15. Now at the back of 16, we're seeing rewriting again. Surely again, tying 15 and 16 together, rewriting Canto 1 at the beginning of Canto 15 and now at the end of Canto 16, tying these cantos together yet in another way. Also, writing backwards indicates that Dante thinks his poem is going to be reread. 
Now we hear a reference to the leopard. We're about to descend into the circle of fraud. Maybe the leopard with the gaudy pelt back there now represents fraud. I'm not sure it did represent fraud back there. I'm sure that it represented a threat on the slope, and I'm sure that it had all kinds of allegorical readings back there. Now it may be becoming more defined. Ah, well, that leopard with the gaudy coat, or here, as we'll talk about, the painted coat, that leopard does represent the sin of fraud. Maybe Dante is trusting you to reread his poem, which means he's putting a great deal of trust in his art. He's saying that you're going to go back and read it again. And two, he is redefining the opening of it. And we're not done with redefining Canto One, by the way. There are more details that are become that are going to become visible, that are become knowable as we pass through Inferno back to that first initial moment in Canto one. We're not done rewriting it. And I think writing backwards indicates that the poet thinks that the text is rereadable and two, that it is still a developing text. But let's talk for a second about the leopard. Back there in Canto 1, it was a gaudy pelt, a, I don't know, a lurid pelt, a lurid skin. Here, the word used is dipenta. It's a painted coat. Paint brings up the question of art and artifice that is painted by whom. And we are about to enter a wild passage about the very nature of art itself. And that this chord was supposed to catch that thing that had been painted is not shocking. In fact, it's highlighting that the pilgrim has a way to capture the artifice to capture the art itself. And yes, perhaps the leopard does represent the sense of fraud that we're about to encounter, but also this chord about his ways was able somehow to connect, catch, keep hold of something that had been painted. I think that that is thematically important to what goes on here because we're about to see a kind of rewriting of the pilgrim and the poet's relationship to Virgil. Let's move on. Our pilgrim takes off the cord, just as my master requested. So Virgil's the one who says, take off that cord. Notice that they're kind of bound up in this tercet, in these three lines. I took it off. My master requested it. I handed it to him, all wound up and knotted. Is there something thematic that Virgil straightens out what the pilgrim hands him? If so, it's extraordinarily intriguing. That is, the pilgrim hands Virgil, the classical poet, the raw material, and the classical poet straightens it out and uses it. It's the opposite of what you would think. You would think that the classical poet provides the raw material that the contemporary poet Dante straightens out and uses for his own purposes. That is, in fact, the way the poem has been operating. The visions of hell up to the walls of Dis have been out of Virgil's Aeneid. It has been the raw material that our poet has been recasting into his poem. Now there seems a greater irony and a, mm, a stranger bit. That is, the pilgrim provides the raw material. It's useless. It's wound up and knotted. Virgil, I guess, 
unknots it. He has to unknot it in order to do what he does and unwind it and throws it over the precipice to call up what he's going to call up out of the deep well of the pit. This horrid thing that's about to appear, not quite in this passage, but in the next passage and in the next one after that. There is something here that is ironic and difficult and strange that I provide the writer, I me, I, I'm the guy, I provide the raw material, it gets passed through the classical poet and then becomes useful. That's different, backwards from the way we might think, and it's backwards from the way the poem itself has operated up until now. And now let's pass out to the last nine lines where it's going to get even stranger. I said to myself, and notice that this is internal dialogue. For sure something new will respond to this weird signal that my master traces with his eyes. That's the pilgrim. The first three lines of this nine-line bit is the pilgrim himself. And the pilgrim has some internal dialogue with himself about something new will respond to this weird signal that my master traces with his eyes. And notice the pilgrim's eyes are focused on Virgil. Virgil's eyes are focused on the rope. Is there something thematic there? The next three lines are the poet. Wow, we should be really careful with those who not only see everything we do, but also can make sense out of our thoughts. That's the poet stepping forward and making a pronouncement about be careful around people who can read your thoughts like Virgil. And Virgil has been a mind reader in the past and apparently is a mind reader because, you know, when you get classical literature in your head, whatever it is, when you get Homer in your head, when you get Virgil in your head, when you get James in your head, when you get George Eliot in your head, when you get when you get great books in your head, you can't get them out. They become kind of mind readers. You start to see the world through them. <laughs> wow, I, I feel like I need to make a plug for my memoir bookmarked here, <laughs> which is subtitled How the Great Works of Western Literature up my life. That's basically what I wrote. But here it is. The poet is saying, watch out because there's mind readers around and they happen to be classical poets who can interpret what we say. But notice it's so wild, these nine lines. First three lines are the pilgrim. Second three lines are the poet speaking back behind the pilgrim. And now the last three lines are Virgil. He said to me, it will soon come into view, this thing I anticipate and that you try so hard to imagine. Soon it will be right in front of your face. Is that the point? That is that the imagination is a twofer. It is Virgil plus Dante. And notice the irony. It's not that the pilgrim uses Virgil. It's that the pilgrim provides the raw materials, as I said, and Virgil uses them. In fact, one would think of Virgil and poetry, as I said, as the raw material, and it has been until now. These nine lines indicate a changed relationship with Virgil. We've moved beyond um, his conception of the afterlife at the walls of Dis, Virgil's conception of the afterlife at the walls of Dis, and now we're moving out into new territory with Virgil and the poet and the pilgrim and their relationship between the three of them, the triangulation amongst them. And Virgil anticipates what 
the pilgrim finds hard to imagine. So it is Virgil who is calling this thing forward that is going to con- that is going to fulfill the imaginative difficulties of the pilgrim and ultimately of the poet who is standing behind him and interjecting into the middle of all of this. Soon it will be right in front of your face. Let's just say one thing about that last line. It will in front of your face? I guess it will be in front of your face in terms of the narrative logic. In other words, something's about to happen that you're going to see. But as you're about to see in the next episode of this podcast, it's not just that it's in front of your face. It's rather that it's really there, actual, in all actuality. This thing is about to appear over the precipice edge. And That strikes me, this blurring of fiction and reality, this blurring of what really happened to me and what I imagined happened to me, this blurring between art and reality is so crucial to what's about to happen to us. But to get there, you got to stay tuned (laughs) for the next episode of the podcast because we got to see this thing come up over the cliff. Here they are standing. Could Could this be more dramatic here they are standing on a precipice giant waterfall it's so loud they can't hear each other except apparently virgil's requested this chord what did he do point to it i don't know because they said in the previous passage they couldn't even hear each other so virgil requested it and then virgil actually speaks but in the previous passage we were told they couldn't even hear each other because the roar of the water is so loud yet virgil speaks and what virgil says is that I anticipate what you're trying to imagine, thereby completely changing the relationship of poet and pilgrim and Virgil, making it incredibly ironic, making it incredibly difficult. Keep with me. Come back for the next episode of this podcast. We're going to finish Canto 16, these mind-boggling Cantos 15 and 16. We're going to finish them off. Remember, this is the same canto that had three guys on the sand, the three Gelf heroes rotating around in their circle. This is the same canto that had history interested only in preserving its reputation, whereas the poet and the pilgrim are changing more into prophetic pronouncements. This is that same canto, and now we're getting stuff about relationships between the imagination and what is, and rewriting the first canto and writing backwards as you go forwards and painted pelts and wow complicated that's why we got to take it slow i'm mark scarborough this is walking with dante